You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. ever truly considered what the character and the purpose of Almighty God is. God himself declares that it is his will that all the earth shall be filled with his glory. What does that mean? And what is behind the Hebrew names for God? This three-part series given by a group of young brothers is absolutely fascinating very revealing and well worth the time spent to listen to them. You will not be disappointed. Thank you for listening. God bless. We know, don't we, that names in the Bible can have great significance and that all Hebrew and Greek names in the Bible have a meaning. Often names can reflect an important event about the child's birth, like most of Jacob's sons. It could uh, tell us about a new start, like Saul of Tarsus, who changed his name to Paul after the Damascus conversion. Or it may tell us about a new, the beginning of a new relationship or a new affiliation to God. And we could think of Abraham, who had his name changed to Abraham to reflect that. Well, we know, don't we, that God has a name, and we're told of that throughout the Old Testament. In fact, it's the name that occurs most in the Old Testament. So clearly it's important that we understand it. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time in our first talk looking at this special name for the God of Israel, Yahweh. So God's name is used from Genesis to Malachi in the Old Testament, but it's believed by the first century that it was no longer in wide use among the Jews because they had developed a superstition that the name was so holy that it could not be uttered. And that superstition really remains to this day among Orthodox Jews. So when it came to reading the religious books of the Old Testament, they would use one of God's titles, either Adonai, which means Lord, or Elohim, which means God instead of reading the name of God. Now, when it came to the 8th century after Christ, the Masoretic scribes developed their own unique vowel pointing system in Hebrew to help them preserve the language. And what they actually did is they changed the vowels underneath God's name uh, in the text to match that of either Adonai or Elohim. You can see that on the slide here. Uh, you can see the red vowel marks under the Hebrew words, which I've highlighted to, to show you here. Um, so in the center, uh, the, or the Hebrew words in the middle, are uh, the tetragrammaton, Yahweh. And if you look at the top one, you can see it's like a, a T-shaped sign, which is called Kamets. Uh, and that's the um, A slash I vowel. And you can see how they've taken that from the uh, vow, which is under Adonai, which means Lord. And so when a person um, would read 
the Tetragrammaton and see that sign, it was um, supposed to tell them that they are to read instead Adonai, which means Lord. And then below that, you can see the little dot, the red dot, which is called a hirik, uh, and that's taken from the, the word on the left, Elohim. And again, when the reader was, would come across the Tetragrammaton, um, they, they were being told by the Masoretic scribes that they should read God there. Now, the translators uh, of the King James followed this system. Instead of transliterating the name of God, they simply followed the Jewish method of translating the title. Um, but instead, they put it in capitals. So in the King James, for example, we often read the phrase, the Lord in capitals, the Lord God, or the Lord God with God in capitals. And it really comes back to this um, method which the Masoretic scribes introduced. So it's interesting, really, because all of the Hebrew names that appear in the King James have been transliterated from the Hebrew Bible, some to a lesser degree than others. But God's name hasn't, apart from four occasions. Here's one of those occasions in Psalm 83, uh, verse 83. Sorry, Psalm 83, verse 18. That men may know that thou, whose name alone is Jehovah, are the most high over all the earth. So they often transliterated the name as Jehovah, which is actually an, in, an inaccurate way of transliterating God's name because there's never been a J sound in Hebrew. And there's now strong scholarly consensus that the original pronunciation was much closer to what we say today as Yahweh or Yahweh. Now, we, we don't exactly know how it is pronounced. The name of God is used before this passage, but of course, this is where we really get the name of God explained to us. And in Exodus 3, God has remembered his covenant. The children of Israel in, are in Egypt in bondage. Let's just look at the end of Exodus chapter 2 here, reading from verse 24. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. So an important point, God has remembered his covenant. He, Yahweh God, is revealing himself to Moses at the burning bush, having remembered his covenant. Let's read on from Exodus 3, verse 8, shall we? So, Yahweh is here speaking to Moses, verse 8, And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land onto a good land, and a large, onto a land flowing with milk and honey onto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses isn't so keen at first, and, and so he has a few 
uh, questions to ask. And one of them we read of in verse 13. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and that they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? So Moses poses this question to God. And Moses was not expressing the ignorance of the divine name because they had known the name from the beginning. We recall the words of Eve in Genesis 4. I have begotten a man from Yahweh. And at the end of Genesis 4, where we read that men began calling upon the name of Yahweh, the name of Yahweh was known right from the beginning. There. And that name was manifested to Abraham. Remember in Genesis 12, when God first um, reveals his purpose with Abraham and, and his promise to him, that after he, Abraham had received that promise, he called upon the name of Yahweh. And this phrase appears time after time um, in the life of Abraham. And we'll recall in Genesis 22, when Abraham offered up Isaac in type, that he called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh. And here we have uh, one of those times that God reaffirms his covenant with Abraham. We read here Genesis 15, verse 1 to 7. After these things, the word of Yahweh came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield, and I am thy exceeding great reward. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in Yahweh, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, and this is the key point here that we want to note, I am Yahweh that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. So verse 7 then, I am Yahweh. So God himself joins his name to the promise that he had made with Abraham, that he was going to bring him out of the earth of the Chaldees and give him this land, the land uh, at the time of Canaan, to inherit it. I am Yahweh, therefore I am going to do these things. Now we don't really have time, but... Um, if we did, we could go to Exodus 6 and consider uh, a few verses there, because there's a clear link there with this passage. We have a um, what I suggest is a rhetorical question in verse 3, that I appeared unto Abram, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty, but by my name Jehovah was I not known to them? It's a rhetorical question, because in verse 4 we read, and I have also established my covenant with them, to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. So we have a link back to Genesis 15. That he was, because he was known unto them as Yahweh, therefore I'm going to keep my covenant with them, God is saying. Hence God has revealed himself in Exodus 3 to Moses at the burning bush to begin fulfilling his promise which he had made to the forefathers
So Moses asks, what is his name? And we've established they knew the name. At this stage, perhaps it was not clear what God's name meant at the time. We'll come on to that in a moment. So let's read from Genesis 3, verse 14. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shall that say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. Well, in fact, that's not a good translation because the Hebrew, the literal rendering of the, in the Hebrew is I will be whom I will be. Which is also consistent with many other English translations. But the word Echia in the Hebrew here for I will be um, is the same word that appears a few verses back in verse 12, where God says, certainly I will be with thee. It's the same phrase. Now, Yahweh means he will be, and it's in the third person singular. Uh, in the imperfective tense in the Hebrew. You can see here that we've got um, the phrase on the left in um, Hebrew, Echia, Asher, Echia. I've transliterated it to the right. Um, and you can see, um, if you look carefully on the left, you can see the, the, the word Echia, I will be, and then below that, you can see uh, its derivatives in the third person, singular. So, Yihye, um, which I've transliterated to YHYH, is literally he will be. And you can see, if you look carefully, there's the three-letter root of the He, the, the Yud and the He, or the HYH, which you also get in the Echya, I will be. Well, we have um, what we call in Hebrew a, a vav letter switch within Hebrew names. It's very common, and it occurs if there's a letter Y, a letter Yud, in the third stem position, or in the, it could be the second as well, the second letter in the root. An example of this is on the right of Eve. In the Hebrew, Eve is Chava, and she was called Chava because she was the mother of all Chaya of all living. And so in that name, you can see how the, the word Chaya means living, living creatures, living creature. And they've taken the, the switch the letter to the Vav. And I believe that's so that you can tell that it's the proper name rather than just uh, either name of, of, of the verb or um, of, of the noun. It's unique in Hebrew. We may not know exactly why that happens, but it occurs, and it's a common thing that occurs with these letters. So the actual name of God has a letter change from the, the verb meaning. So that perhaps gives us some indication to why they may not have actually known what the name meant, uh, because it was spelt ever so slightly differently, uh, but it had the same meaning. He will be. So we're being told that God will be something. And God goes on to say in verse 15 of Exodus 3, And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, 
Yahweh, God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. So this is God's name, not just for this time period when Moses is going to deliver the Israelites from bondage in Egypt, but it's going to be God's name forever. And the Hebrew here for all generations is, is literally it's a re repetition of the word generation. Door, door, it's generation, generation, which is a Hebrewism. It's really suggesting a special, a chosen generation. And then it's going to be a memorial. It's going to be remembered by a special generation. And in verse 17, you can see God's name, he who will be, is connected with his future work in redeeming Israel. Verse 17, I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of the Egypt unto the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites onto a land flowing with milk and honey. We see this, in fact, more clearly if we turn up Exodus chapter 6. I just uh, quoted Exodus 6 a little uh, a moment ago. And God is saying here that he was known unto the fathers by his name. He'd attached his name to the covenant, and therefore he was remembering that covenant. And he was going to give them the land of Canaan, verse 4, the land of their pilgrimage wherein they were strangers. Verse 5, now I've also heard the groaning of the children of Israel. I've remembered my covenant. Verse 6, the wherefore say unto the children of Israel, I am Yahweh. So I want to pay close attention here to the number of future tense verbs which are used um, in, the, in, in describing what God is now going to do for the children of Israel. So I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rid you out of their bondage. I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you in onto the land concerning the which I did swear to give to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for an, in, an, an heritage. I am Yahweh. So I counted seven there. Uh, so note it also begins with the God is announcing his name. Seven times we read of things God is going to do or going to be. Um, and then it closes again with an utterance of God's name. So seven is quite an uh, important number in scripture, isn't it? Significant number. Perhaps the number of the covenants, the number of, of perfection. The key point is this is God's name forever. This is just the beginning um, of God's purpose being revealed. And God's name, he'll be clearly associated with, with God's future work. Verse 7 says, I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God. And so in this act of deliverance from Egypt, through the mighty acts and the great wonders and, and miracles that God was going to perform, he was going to be known 
unto the, the children of Israel. And there's a lot of um, scriptures that are, which allude back to this moment of God redeeming the children of Israel. We could turn up maybe 1 Samuel 12, but we don't have time. Or look at 1 Kings 8, uh, verses 42 to 46. We see a lot of allusions back here. But what we're going to do now is just turn up Ezekiel chapter 20. Because Ezekiel, through inspiration in this chapter, is describing some of the history of the events of the Exodus. Exodus uh, chapter 20. In fact, because we're a little bit short of, of time, we're going to um, point out some of the main bits on the screen here from this pass these passages. So verse 5 mentions how that God chose Israel and lifted up his hand onto the seed of the house of Jacob and made himself known onto the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. And then that is repeated again. Cast away every man the abominations of his eyes and defile not yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. So another pronunciation of God's name. Uh, and note there, it's interesting that it suggests that, the, that the, the children of Israel, whilst they had been in Egypt, had become to be influenced by the Egyptians around them. They had, uh, that, that wall of separation had started to, to erode and they had started to um, adopt the pagan ways of, of the Egyptians prior to God delivering them from Egypt. Verse 9 and 14 says that he wrought these things for his name's sake, that he made himself known unto them in Egypt. And of course, God was not just to be known among Israel, but also Egypt and all the nations. Recall the words speaking of Pharaoh in Exodus 9, verse 16. And in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. And of course, the Exodus was only the beginning of God's fulfillment, as we've already said, of who he would be. It really presents us with, with a foundation of the process of redemption in Scripture. And this process of redemption is used as, as an example throughout Scripture to point forwards to future redemption of God taking his people, of redeeming them through his mighty hand and God being glorified in the process. And we can apply, of course, the, the, the um, exodus spiritually to ourselves, can't we? We were once in Egypt, in, in the world of sin, and yet through the calling of the gospel, we've been taken out of the iron furnace, the place of sin, and redeemed through the blood of Christ and the mighty work 
which was accomplished through his death on the cross. We've been brought nigh unto God as his people, and we are currently being redeemed now. For Christ is risen, our high priest, whoever liveth to make intercession for us. We are sojourning in the wilderness, and we await that greatest and final redemption at Christ's return, when our bodies will be transformed, being changed from these mortal, sinful bodies we all bear to a nature divine, incorruptible, and sinless, when we at last, by God's grace, enter the promised land of God's kingdom through that greater Joshua, that Yehoshua, Jesus, who will bring us into the promised land of, of God's kingdom. And so that future redemption of Israel is to be fulfilled according to this pattern found in the Exodus from Egypt. We can see that if we just turn to the later chapters, sorry, the later verses of Exodus chapter 20. We read here, as I live, saith the Lord Yahweh, surely with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out will I rule over you. And I will bring you out from the people and will gather you out of the countries wherein you are scattered with a mighty hand, with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out. Of course, that phrase, that mighty hand and outstretched arm is that phrase, that Exodus phrase, isn't it? Where whereby God delivered his people through those miracles. We read verse 35, and I'll bring you into the wilderness of the people, and there will I plead with you face to face. Like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, saith the Lord Yahweh. We read on how that God is going to bring them into that new covenant, and he's going to purge out from among them the rebels and those that transgressed against him. And he's going to bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn. And then they would know that I am Yahweh. We, I think it's in Micah, isn't it? Where we have it told to us. According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvellous things. And ye shall know that I am Yahweh. It's a very common phrase. Used throughout Ezekiel, isn't it? And also Exodus. But there's a, a warning for us here, isn't there? I know this is applying to Israel. But God's going to purge them in, in the wilderness. But if we also turn from him and, and, and disobey like Israel, then we are going to be purged out, aren't we? Just like he will purge out them during their time in the wilderness of the people. So uh, if we forsake God, if we're not faithful, we will not enter the promised land. And so there's exhortation there for ourselves, isn't there? But we could go to Exodus, sorry, not Exodus, Ezekiel chapter 38 and read of the consequences of of Gog's invasion because we had this type in Exodus didn't we of God redeeming his people from Egypt 
And through that act, not only was Yahweh made known unto the Jews, unto Israel, but he always also was made known unto Pharaoh and the nations round about. The peoples heard of this mighty God who delivered his people. And so the same thing is going to happen. At the end of Armageddon, Christ and the saints are going to deliver Israel. And they're going to learn that he is Yahweh, all-powerful, almighty God of the heavens and the earth. We read right at the end of Ezekiel 38. And I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood, and I will rain upon him and upon his bands, and upon the many people that are with him an overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstones. That's language hearkening back to the plagues of Exodus, isn't it? Of the, of the punishments upon, upon Egypt. But first, thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am Yahweh. So we see how the purpose of God in redeeming his people is to be played out as it was, in Exodus, we are fulfilling that process of redemption, and also that process will occur at the time of Armageddon and the delivery of the Jewish people and the establishment of God's kingdom. So who is God going to be? He'll be known among all Israel, he should be known among the nations through his mighty acts and, and great deliverance. And he will be praised and, and glorified through a family of immortal saints upon the earth. Sorry, I forgot to show that slide, but that's what we've just read from Ezekiel chapter 20. So now what we need to do is consider the name of God and God's character. We'll start by turning up Exodus chapter 34. So prior to Exodus 34, we have Moses' request. Verse 18, Moses beseeched God, and he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And so we have here an association with God's glory and his goodness and his name. That he would pass, cause his good, uh, goodness to pass before Moses and proclaim the name of Yahweh. So we read of that in the next chapter, reading from verse 5 of Exodus 34. 
And Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood before him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. And Yahweh passed by before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. So we, we use the word in, in, in the name in a similar way in English, don't we, when we say someone has a good name, he's got a good reputation. It's a reference to, to one's character. Well, this is the, the name of our God, brothers and sisters. These awesome characteristics of our God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. And God is going to become these things through, uh, he, through his people who will reveal these characteristics in their lives and so give glory to his names. These people are termed the Elohim, the mighty ones in Psalm 82, who are the sons of the living God. And those who don't manifest these things Though they be called, will be discarded. And God will find others who do. It's a sober warning for ourselves, isn't it? Myself included. To make sure that we are manifesting these characteristics. Well, Psalm 22 speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ in prophecy. In verse 22, we read, I will declare thy name. Unto my brethren, in the midst of the congregation, will I praise thee. How did Jesus declare God's name? Well, he declared God's name by manifesting God's character perfectly. And this is what Jesus did throughout his whole life. He showed mercy to the poor. He showed true justice to the religious scribes and Pharisees who questioned him. And he spoke only the truth, declaring righteous judgment. In so much so that he could say uh, to Philip in John 14, verse 9, that he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And Jesus, in prayer to his heavenly Father, recorded in John 17, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me. It was recorded at the beginning of the Gospel of John. The almighty character of God was seen through his Son, that the Word became flesh, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So though the, the Yahweh name itself may not appear in the New Testament very often, it does occur in Revelation 19, four times in the phrase hallelujah, praise Yah. Of course, the theme of God's name is throughout Scripture, both the New and Old Testament. And indeed, Jesus' name itself contains the name of God, Yehoshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. And it, it shouldn't really surprise us that Jesus' name, Yehoshua, 
is the most common name, appears most in the New Testament, because God was in Christ reconciling himself to the world and manifested his name. And we have been called through our Lord Jesus Christ to be a people for his name, a part of that special generation we read of earlier in Exodus 3. In Acts 15 verse 14, we read that Simeon had declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. We follow that same pattern of redemption. We experience the, the name in our lives, the redeeming process we looked at earlier. And we also are expected and being called to the truth of having the gospel revealed to us to manifest Yahweh's glorious characteristics in our lives, as was done so perfectly by the Lord Jesus Christ. So are we manifesting the characteristics of the name? Is the name a strong tower unto us? Or are we blaspheming the name for our ungodly acts like Israel of old? Are we faithfully following the example of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, let's endeavour to live up to the, the standards which we've been called to, to live up to the name and the high calling in which we have been called. When you consider just how small we are, just how fragile, just how weak, how insignificant, tiny specks upon this planet which we inhabit, even smaller compared to the vast universe, it's such a blessing that God has called us out to know him, that God has revealed himself to us in his word, and that God has chosen to reveal himself to us by his name Yahweh, as we have considered and by different titles, which we're going to consider a couple of now. So in this class, looking at El or Ale. <clears throat> and so this title from the, the Hebrew, the main takeaway from this class is that we want to recognize that this title conveys the idea of strength or power. That whenever we come across this title in a, a meditation upon God's word, and even in the English, we will do so quite often because of, for example, Israel or Bethel, or Emmanuel, such names as that which contain this title of God, the idea being conveyed is that of power. And so I'm just going to read a very short quote from Phanerosis. Um, it's a very good book if you want to look further into the names and titles of God, and this Logos edition actually has at the beginning some extra information on the name and titles of God. And here, it's Brother John Thomas writing it, and he's kind of making the point that in the English we have the word God, which from the Saxon, it, it conveys the idea of good. And of course, God is good, but that's not the idea that's been expressed when he chooses to use titles such as Ale. And so he's talking of Abraham the Hebrew in the section on Hebrew titles of deity. And he says this, 
As often as this word, ale, passed before his mind, the idea of power, might, strength would stand out in bold relief. It always, says Jesenius, presented to the Hebrews the idea of strength and power. And so we can see there that it's, it's defined by Jesenius as strength and power, and we're going to shortly see that, that scripturally we can be confident that this is the case. And so when we think about the idea of God, so often in our Bibles, when we, we read the word God, off, it can be different Hebrew titles, but so many of them are related to this idea of strength and power. That's the way in which God is choosing to convey before us. So passing through our minds, hopefully we can come to appreciate this. Is, this is what God is showing to us, that he is the powerful one. He is the strong one, the source of all power. And so we'll just <clears throat> have a quick look at how this title relates into other titles that we might find. So as we say, we're looking at L, it's E-L in the English when it's transliterated. You'll sometimes also see it written as A-I-L as how we might pronounce it. In the Hebrew, it's just two letters reading from right to left, Aleph Lamed. So it's this idea of L or ale, and if you look at the Strong's number and look through the occurrences, occasionally you might come across one that's actually in, in plural. You won't be able to tell from Strong's, but if you look at the Hebrew, it's actually elim, which is the plural of ale. And then we also, sometimes we come across this word eloah. It doesn't occur that frequently, but a lot more which we'll be looking at in the next talk is Elohim. And just like Elim is the plural of ale, it's possible that Elim is the plural of lower, although it is hard to be sure. Um, but you can see this idea, they, you've got El singular, Elim in Hebrew, the Im on the end, it makes it plural if it's masculine, and potentially it's lower and Elohim. But really what I wanted to point out is you'll see that they, they all begin the same way with Aleph Lamed, they all begin with El. They all seem to have at the root this idea of strength, this idea of power, as we say. And something else just to note is that we have different titles of God, which are perhaps made up of more than one Hebrew word. For example, El often is used with other Hebrew words to give, as it were, compound titles like El Elyon. And that would be translated in English, the most high God. We've also got El Shaddai, or it's translated God Almighty. We've got Alkana, jealous God. Elolam, Olam has the idea of an age or forever. Elamuna, Amuna is faithfulness. El Yisrael, or even El Elohim Yahweh, putting all of our titles together in one. And so that's just a few examples of how El can be combined. And of course, you could go away and do studies on well, what, what exactly is God trying to convey when he says El Elyon, when that's how he reveals himself, that's how he describes himself as the most high God, what exactly is he conveying, or with El Shelyon, you can look into these titles more, but we're just focusing in this class on just Ale. The other quick thing we're going to note where we've got the slides is that, as we say in, in a lot of names, for example, a place named Bethel, you've got it's Ale at the end. It's, it's the house of Ale, the house of the powerful one, or Emmanuel, or Joel, or Ariel, or even Israel. And so it is a, a title that we're going to come across quite a lot, even in the English. And 
So as we say, if we can just take away that this is the idea that's been conveyed, it is strength, it is power. We're going to stop sharing now and we'll just look at this scripturally and show how this idea, this title relates into strength. So if you can come with me to Proverbs and Proverbs chapter three. <clears throat> so this word ale in the Hebrew, it occurs quite a lot in the in the Bible and often it's translated as God, or either referring to God or perhaps referring to like a false God, a false power. But there are occasions in which it's it's actually translated as an English word and there's perhaps five notable ones and each of these five occurrences it always also occurs alongside the Hebrew word for hand and it gets translated to the effect of it's in the power of your hand and so we see one of these here in Proverbs chapter 3 in verse 27 the proverb is withhold not good from them to whom it is due when it is in the power of thine hand to do it in the hebrew it's when it is in the ale of thine hand to do it and so if we are wondering well, what does ale mean can we be confident that it does have this idea of power and if you just read it as as when it's in the ale of thy hand you should do it and wonder what what idea has been conveyed here by ale then I think we can see that, yes, power very much fits. It must be conveying the idea of it's, it's in the strength of your hand or it's in the ability of your hand. It's, that's the idea to be conveyed, that you can do this. You have some sort of power to affect this. When you can do good, do good. And that, that's the idea, isn't it? We'll just look at another one. And we're going to contrast this one then in Proverbs with Micah chapter 2. And Micah chapter 2 and verse 1. And we see the same idea there, but... It's in the opposite in Micah. Micah 2 verse 1 reads, Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it, because it is in the ale of their hand. It's in the power of their hand. And so what we're seeing is then scripturally, yes, we can say that the ale conveys this idea of power or strength, the ability to do something. That's how it's used, and that to some degree, each of us, we have power in our hand. There's things that we can choose to do, and we can choose to do either good or evil with the power that we have in our hands. And the excitation then is how those who are evil, those because it's in the power of the hand, they do evil. Whereas we're instructed by the proverb, brother, to not withhold good from those to whom it's due. And when it's in the power of our hands to help, we should help. With all the power in our hearts, we should try and do God's will. And so we've seen perhaps quite simply that ale is conveying power. And for the rest of this talk, we're just going to try and develop this excitation a little bit more about how, yes, we have power in our hand. But of course, the only power we have in our hand is because the, the ale, because the powerful one, because God in heaven above, because our creator has given us that power. And so if you'll now come back with me to Genesis chapter 14. In Genesis 14, it's the first time we, we read the word ale in the sense of on its own or where it's translated as God. We, we do have it before this in names, for example. We'll look later at Bethel. Bethel occurs before this. But here it is actually translated and it's kind of the first time it's used as a title for God uh, on its own. And it's 
the context of this massive, as it, I guess, a war between these great mighty kings. And there's all these kings having this big war, and there's kind of like little Abraham in the middle of them. And when Lot is taken away, Abraham's brother's son, you'll see in verse 12, Abraham takes some of his friends and some of his servants, and he goes to fight against the victorious kings. And amazingly, miraculously, Abraham defeats those great kings. And then we are introduced to Melchizedek in verse 18. And so Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. It's, as we saw on the screen earlier, it's El Elyon, the Most High Ale. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High Ale, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High Ale, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And so how was it that Abraham was able to defeat these great kings? How was it in the power of Abraham's hand to, de to defeat them? Well, it's very clear as Melchizedek says, it's because the most high power, the powerful one, gave that power to Abraham. It's because God delivered them into the hand of Abraham. And so to any power we might ever have in our hand is, of course, because the ale has given us that power, because ale in in heaven, far above us, he has given us that power, just as he delivered the enemies into Abraham's hand. Our very breath is in his hand. And so Abraham listens to Melchizedek, and he picks up this in verse 22. He says to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up mine hand unto Yahweh, the most high ale, the possessor of heaven and earth. And he picks up that title, and he says he's lift up his hand, and it is it's perhaps the idea of an oath, but... You can also kind of see that Abraham's lifting up his hand, recognizing that his power in his hand comes from heaven above. He recognizes this, and so must we. That any power or strength we have comes from the powerful one, the strong one, from Eil, as God has revealed himself to us. And so let's just look at this idea a bit further with Abraham's grandson, Jacob. So when we come to Jacob, here's the one who is kind of in that contest with his twin brother Esau right from his birth. He's kind of the one grasping at the heel and his, his name reflects this. And it seems to be that Jacob is always able, in a sense, to get his own way through his own strength, apparently. So he is, he's able, through selling the pottage, to get the birthright from Esau. He's able through deceit to get his father to bless him. And of course, in reality, it's only because God is overseeing these things and he can only do that because God allows him to. But it might appear to some degree that, that Jacob is able to do these things in his own strength. It seems that he perhaps should have waited on God rather than going ahead and deceiving. And yet Jacob is gonna be taught by God just as all of us have different weaknesses and we have to be taught. And so as a result of these things, he ends up fleeing from his brother Esau. And at first he actually comes to Bethel and he has relation to that place of the house of Ale. And when he's there, he, he actually kind of um, has that condition that when he gets to Bethel, that he's looking for, for God to look after him. 
for God to protect him. As he's fleeing from his brother Esau, as he's going into a new land. And it's, it's at Bethel that I think it says, he vowed a vow that if God be with me, and indeed God was with him. And so Jacob, who became a deceiver, is going to have to learn not to deceive. And he's sent to Laban, who in a sense is like the master of deceit. And Laban deceives him time and time again. And if it wasn't for God looking after him, he'd have come away with nothing. In fact, when he does come away from Laban, even then God intervenes when, when Laban, as it were, chases after him. We see if we now come to Genesis 31, in Genesis 31 verse 29, Laban actually says to him, it is in the power, it is in the ale of my hand to do you hurt. But the God of your father spake unto me yesternight. And so Jacob, again, is being taught by God. Even through the words of Laban, because God has, has intervened. It's in the, the power, the ale of Laban's hand to hurt him, but God has intervened. The ale has intervened. And so God is delivering Jacob constantly, and he recognizes this. Verse 41, he says, Thus have I been twenty years in thy house. And verse 42 says, Except the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely thou hast sent me away now empty. And so there he is, day after day, day and night, presumably, day and night is there, working hard with all the, his strength in the field. And yet he would have come away with nothing if it wasn't for God. He recognizes that. And again, God delivers him when Laban chases after him. But then he makes this, this covenant with Laban at the end of this chapter. And they, verse 52, they set this heap as a witness. And it says, and this pillar be witness that I will not pass over this heap to thee. And so in a sense, there's a line drawn in the sand. And he is making his way, I think it's south into the land. And now he can't return north. He's, he's made this witness that he can't return north. But in the next chapter, his brother Esau comes against him with 400 men. And Jacob presumes the worst. And he can't flee up north. So what's he going to do? And so here is Jacob. And I think this is the, perhaps the key moment in Jacob's life. That he's come to a situation in which he is, he's not able to get himself out. In his own strength or his own cunningness or craftiness, he can't deliver himself this time. He believes that Esau with the 400 men are going to come and devastate him and his family. He, he, he sends some presents ahead to Esau. He, you know, he makes a bit of an effort, but the best it seems he can do is divide his household into two so that maybe only half of his household will be slaughtered. He comes to the point in which he cannot at all rely upon his strength. The only thing left to do, as we see in verse 9, is he, he prays to God. He recognizes his own weakness. Verse 10, he says, I am not worthy. In the Hebrew, it's katonti. I am small of all thy mercy and all thy truth, which thou hast showed unto thy servant. And then when the angel appears unto him in verse 24, we see he wrestles. Verse 25 says, when the, the angel saw he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And so here's Jacob, he's terrified about his brother Esau, and his angel appears to him, and he's wrestling with him throughout the night. And all the angel has to do is touch his thigh. And there his, his great thigh, his power, 
the, the strength of his flesh is immediately gone. He is powerless, of course he is, before an angel. An angel can just touch his thigh and it just withers up. This is, of course, how weak man is before God. And yet, there's Jacob, and it says in verse 26 that the angel says, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And there he is terrified, clinging onto this angel. If we come across to Hosea, we find a bit more out about this in Hosea and chapter 12. Hosea chapter 12, verse 3, we're reading about Jacob. He took his brother by the heel in the womb, as we said, and yet by his strength he had power with God, or in the margin is perhaps he behaved himself princely with God. But how in any fashion can a man have power with God? Verse 4, yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. How could a man possibly prevail over an angel of God? Well, I think the answer is if we can keep reading that it says, he wept and made supplication unto him. And I guess in the, the English, it could be either that the angel wept and made supplication to Jacob, or it could be Jacob wept and made supplication to the angel. But I, I think that is the idea that uh, I think it's that Jacob is weeping and making supplication and clinging unto the angel. I think Young's literal says something like he, he prevailed by weeping or something to that effect. And so I think that's what the idea is here, that here is Jacob in a situation in his life when he recognizes his, his, his own weakness and his utter dependence upon his God. And so he clings unto the angel. His weak, his thigh has just been instantly, as it says, out of joint when the angel just touched it. But he will not let the angel go. He clings on. He's seeking for a blessing and tears are streaming down his face. And he recognizes his dependence upon God. And it's at this point that Genesis 32 says, verse 28, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. And so this is when Jacob is blessed with the name Yisrael. El. He will be a prince with Ale, with the mighty one, with the powerful one. This is when his name is changed. And I, th I think there's perhaps two key reasons that an Israelite indeed is one in whom there is no guile. And perhaps with his time with Laban, he's begin to learn to turn away from deceit. But then secondly, that it's at this point in which he realizes his utter dependence upon God and really turns to God and depends fully upon God. And God is going to deliver him as a result because God is the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. That is our God high above us. But as he says, Isaiah 57, 15, thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and the holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. And just like Jacob, the Lord Jesus Christ went through that same experience. If you come across to Hebrews chapter 5, though the Lord Jesus Christ was the Son of God, he knew that he was better than everyone else around him. By birth, he was the Son of God. He was the only one to have lived sinlessly. He was going around doing great miracles and healing people. 
You can see the, the greatest temptation upon him out of all people to be lifted up in pride and self-sufficiency. And yet, not at all. Hebrews 5 verse 7 says about the Lord Jesus Christ, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears like Jacob, and to him that was able to save him out of death and was heard in that he feared. The Lord Jesus Christ went through that Jacob-like experience. He realized his utter dependence upon his God. When the Lord Jesus Christ was in the tomb, when he was dead, he had no power of his own. He was utterly reliant upon his father. So too for each of us, if, if we die before the Lord returns, we will be utterly powerless once we're dead. We are so completely dependent upon God, although sometimes we perhaps fail to really appreciate that. But the Lord Jesus Christ did, and with tears he prayed to his God that he might deliver him out of death. And so should we. And I believe this is experience that the nation of Israel is going to go through when they're at the Battle of Armageddon, when Gog has come down, they'll come to the point in which they are, there's nothing left they can do but cry out to God. And as soon as they do, Christ and the saints will come and deliver them. But this is what we have to recognize, that all of our power in our hand, all of our ale comes from ale in heaven above. It comes from our God. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, he knew this. He was a man like us. Though he were the son of God. And he said, I can of mine own self do nothing. And he, he humbled himself and he prayed to God with tears. And so God strengthened him. And so I believe is the one spoken of in um, Psalm 80 verse 17. Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand, upon the son of man whom thou, whom thou made us strong for thyself. And so God made him strong. And then as a man, he was crucified through weakness. But he liveth by the power of God. That's the end of 2 Corinthians. It's 2 Corinthians 13, verse 4. For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. And so as we consider Ale, the strong, the powerful one, we have to recognize this, that we are weak. But if we are crucified with Christ, then God in his strength, in his power, we can live. He is able to transform us. And so, if you'll just come back with me to Genesis once more, we're going to just finish by showing that this is the choice that we have set before us. And this time back even further, back to Genesis chapter 12, we have this clear choice set before us. All these the people, almost 8 billion people alive upon this planet. We, we see creation around us teaches us so many lessons. And you look at the small ants, and there they are, these tiny little ants running here and there. And who even notices them? If you perhaps drop something and crush five of them, you might not even notice. That's how small, how insignificant they are. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Whether you be atheist or a Muslim or Christian, we're these tiny little beings running around and... You know, even if we live a really long time, perhaps 120 years, that's it, then we're dead. 
we cease to be. We have no strength or power of our own, and yet God has called us to make a choice to choose between life and death. And so if we come into Genesis 12 and we're reading about Abraham in verse 8, and in a sense we're before that first occurrence of Ale, but we're reading about Bethel. And as we say Bethel, it means the house of Ale, and so it's an even earlier occurrence. And I think the idea here is being put to Abraham that he has this choice, because in Genesis 12, verse 8, he removed from thence into a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And so he's between these two places. He's between Bethel, the house of Ale, the house of power, and Ai. Ai has the idea of a heap of ruins, and it occurs with the definite article Ha. It's Ha'ai the heap of ruins so on the one side the house of power on the other side the heap of ruins this complete contrast and abraham has this choice and we read through the rest of the chapter and abraham gets it wrong he ends up going down into egypt not being quite truthful about his wife his wife getting taken into bondage in pharaoh's house and he goes through this wonderful type of the exodus but he he messes up but god delivers him and in chapter 13 Abram went up out of Egypt, in verse 3, he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, and to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ha'ai. And so when he messes up, he returns to where he was before, at the beginning. And he gets to make that choice again. He's again, once again, it's between the house of power and the heap of ruins. And this time he goes through and he chooses Bethel, he chooses the right way. And I think that's the idea being presented to us. And so in the interaction with Lot, he does what's right, I believe. But that's the choice set between all of us. To seek God's strength and the house of Ale, or ultimately to choose ruin and decaying back to dust and ceasing to be in our whole lives, being meaningless. And so we'll... If we come to our penultimate passage in Ezekiel 28, we see this, the kind of the two extreme ways. Ezekiel 28 sets the, the one side for us, how we can be so easily, can't we, lifted up in our own pride, in our own self-sufficiency. We kind of have an extreme example here in Ezekiel 28, and it might not apply and it's extreme to us, but even in the truth it can apply to us. We might perhaps do a, a service in the truth, actually, because of pride, because we want to be seen by man to be doing good. We might rely upon ourselves and our own strength. Ezekiel 28 verse 2, talking about the, the king of Tyre, it says, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyre, thus saith the Lord Yahweh, because thine heart is lifted up and thou hast said, I am an ale, I am a power, I sit in the seat of Elohim in the midst of the seas, yet thou art a man and not ale, though thou set thine heart as the heart of Elohim. That's kind of an extreme example of the king of Tyre setting him up, thinking he's got all this power. And yet, verse 9, Wilt thou yet say before him that slayeth thee, I am Elohim? But thou shalt be a man, and no ale, in the hand of him that slayeth thee. He's going to be a man, in the Hebrew, an Adam. No power in the hand of him that slayeth him. And it's so true for all of us. We're all sons of Adam. We have no power of our own. If we trust in our own strength, that's where we're going to end up. One day we'll become but just dust, 
and that dust will be scattered and we'll cease to be or know anything. That's the one choice. If you come to our final reference in 2 Samuel 22, it's actually the, the parallel record for that reading we had chosen for us in Psalm 18. 2 Samuel 22, and just reading a few verses here. Verse 31 says, As for Ael, his way is perfect. The word of Yahweh is tried. He is a buckler to all them that trust in him. For who is Ael? Who is powerful? Who is the powerful one save Yahweh? And who is a rock save our Elohim? Ael is my strength and power, and he maketh my way perfect. And that's it, isn't it? As we say, we, we want to take away from this class, if that's the one thing we can remember, that Ael has this idea of strength and power, that he is the powerful one. But the excitation from that should be, we should recognize that any power we have is from him. He is our strength and our power, just as I think we can see this is prophetic of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the strength and power of the Lord. He is our strength and our power. He is the, the perfect one. And he is able to make our way perfect. And so if we humble ourselves and put our utter dependence upon him, he is able to save us. He is able to change us. He is able to make our way perfect and give us immortal strength to serve him forevermore. And so hopefully then like like the Hebrew Abraham, when we come across these titles of God, we can see passing through our minds also this idea of strength and power and ascribe all that strength and power to our God and humbly serve him with all the power that's in our hand that we can do our best to seek and to serve and do his will. For he is the powerful one whom we worship. He is our strength and our power and he is able to make our way perfect. So we're looking at Elohim, the ministers of Yahweh, and, and this word Elohim, it appears, I think it's over 2,600 times in the Bible, and over 2,000 of those times, it's the word in, in the singular form, and referring to the God of Israel. However, we can understand the Elohim to be God's, angel, God's angels, and that's what we're going to be thinking about um, in this short time together. And we can read how from Genesis chapter one, we can read how the Elohim created the world. How man was made in the Elohim's image. And, and then we can see them doing God's will throughout the Bible. And in this time together, we'll, we'll think about God's angels and the Elohim, the ministers of Yahweh. We'll have a look at some of their characteristics. Some of these will be ones we're very familiar with, but I think they're useful for us to remind ourselves of. Um, we'll look at some examples the angels in the bible um, and then we'll think about some lessons which relate to ourselves today and how it can really impact our lives so to start with we'll just think about some of the angels nature and, and their characteristics so their looks well it's not a definitive answer what an angel looks like um, from scripture we know that angels can take a variety of appearances can't they 
Um, they can appear like humans and be so, so similar that they aren't recognized as anything else or the humans think they are humans. Um, in Hebrews 13, we can read how people have entertained angels unaware. Um, in, in one of the earlier talks, we, we looked at Moses in the burning bush and the angel of the Lord there. Um, we think of Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace. Um, angels can appear shining really brightly or they could be invisible in the incident with Balaam and the donkey um, and they're spirit, spirit beings and they can take on a variety of appearances to our human eye anyway depending on what they are looking to accomplish for God um, however we're not going to spend too long thinking on their appearances I feel we can learn a lot more from their characteristics and actions although I think it's just worthwhile stopping and, and thinking about the sheer fact that they can take on so many appearances it's it's quite hard for us with our human brains and, and our lives to sort of comprehend how a being can do that. And yet it's just a reflection. Um, and as Brother Luke was talking about of how powerful God is and, and God's angels are in comparison to ourselves. So the Psalm reading we had as an introduction, Psalm 103, um, gives us a good start when we're thinking about the angel's characteristics um, and, and we'll just I'll mention a few um, examples of this from scripture as we go through just to get your brains going so psalm 103 and it was in verses 20 and 21 which I'll just read bless the lord ye his angels that excel in his strength that do his commandments hearkening unto the voice of his word bless ye the lord all ye his you ministers of his that do his pleasure so just pulling out a few of the things from these verses these verses emphasize that the angels excel in strength um, which ties in quite well with brother luke's talk before um there's just raw power they've got god's strength and we can think of um an example of this the angel of the lord um wiping out sennacherib's army the whole army of assyria um, in Isaiah 37, and it was, was 185,000 people in one night wiped out by one angel. It, it's just power that we can't really comprehend. And it's amazing to think if one angel can do this, when Christ returns, how almost pathetic will it be um, any resistance man can have? So the next point we can take from this verse in the Psalms is that they do God's commandments. Um, and we'll just come back a few Psalms to Psalm 91. Um, Psalm 91 and reading from verse 11. For he gave his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Um, this is likely to have been written by Moses talking about God's care for the people of Israel but it's also a comforting verse for ourselves isn't it and it fits this idea that the angels God's angels follow his commandments so well um and and how God can command his angels to protect people to destroy people um this verse is again quoted by Jesus in the temptations but when we think of God being our refuge and fortress his angels are part of that image the guards the, the protectors um following God's commandments and again, in the Psalm 103, we read how the angels hearken unto the voice of his word. Um, so 
we, we could look at a passage in Exodus 23 where we can read how God, Exodus 23 and verse 20, we could see how God sent the angel of the Lord out before the Israelites to guide them. Again, an angel carrying out God's work, following his commands and hearkening to his word and working with God to achieve God's goal, God's purpose. And we also can read in this psalm passage how the angels do God's pleasure, similar to the points before almost, but all enforcing the point that God and his angels are one in, in the purpose they have. And we could turn to how the angel of the Lord rolled back the stone of Jesus's tomb or opened the prison doors of the apostles. There's so many examples of the angels working perfectly in sync with God's plan. They're, they're so aligned. And that's one of the, the points I want us to think about this evening. A few other points about angels. We know that they don't sin because we know that um, in God's presence, no sinner can approach. Um, we, in Psalm 89, we could read of how of the angels being described as the sons of the mighty, reminding us again of how they are mighty and how that might comes from God as they are God's representatives and they bear his name whilst they carry out his will. It is interesting to note, and it's one verse in Matthew 24. I'll just read it to you, um, although we won't look into it in, in much detail. Matthew 24, I'm just reading verse 36. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my father only. So I think it's just an inside that the angels don't know everything. Um, but yeah, they, they are still so powerful. So we've sort of flown through a few examples there of where these characteristics, what, what characteristics these angels have. Um, but I've done that. So hopefully when I try and pull out a few points of excitation for us, we can have these. They provide a bit of background um, and help us when we're thinking about ourselves. And, and I think there's just a couple of really nice but really powerful messages we can take from the Elohim, the ministers of God. Um, and the main idea of the lesson I want to think of here is that these ministers or servants of God are so in tune with him, so in sync with his goals, his work, his meaning, um, and that, that they are referred to bearing God's name, God's amazing name that we've looked at in these two talks already. And just that fact is quite incredible, isn't it, really? And, and then we, when we think about ourselves, there, there are these angels who are so in tune with, with God. And yet, well, we know God created them, but we could also say God created us. And yet we're so far away from God's planet times, aren't we? If, if someone was slightly different in their actions or their thinking or anything like that, you couldn't really call that that person the name of, of someone else unless they were identical and you may get confused um, and and yet we see with the angels of God that they're so in line with his plan that they share part of his name um, and just thinking of our own lives we try and, and, and do God's will don't we and we try and mirror Jesus's example we, we ideally would want to be so in sync in tune with Jesus and then following his way of life and his goals and his work that there would be no difference. Unfortunately, that isn't the case. But but Jesus Jesus was a human, so it should be possible. And yet we don't bear Jesus's name like the angels bear God's name. However, we are baptised into the saving name of Jesus, aren't they? Aren't we? Our actions, our lives. What are we called? It, it's not Jesus 
shift or something similar because we're so far away the way we live our lives sometimes from being totally aligned with Jesus. And I could almost just picture a mirror. Um, I can get this on Zoom because you can see yourself um, moving. But if you picture a mirror, when you move, the reflection moves perfectly in sync, doesn't it? If you raise one hand, you will see your reflection raise a hand as well and, and it comes down. Um, and, and that is how we should be with our lives, comparing it to Jesus's lives, just as the angels were so aligned with God's plan. Um, and, and I think that's the, the powerful message I want us to take from this talk when we're thinking about the image of the Elohim, how we should be trying to live our lives. Um, the, angel of, the angels of God do exactly what he wants. And, and it's a powerful lesson, isn't it? We, we can think of David. Um, he was described as a man after God's own heart, wasn't he? He did so many faithful things and it so fulfilled so much of God's plan. And yet there was so much in his life, which he did that was so far from God's plan, which was so far from being fully aligned with God as he had a sinful nature. And there was such a huge difference, wasn't there? That he, he didn't bear God's name in that respect. And it is that, that curse of sin, that human nature we all possess and why we're so grateful we have an amazingly powerful God, but a merciful God, isn't it? I think another lesson we can take from the angels is, is how they're God's messengers, aren't they? And, and, and angels, a lot of times in the Bible, it, it can mean messengers, can't we? Um, and just thinking again about how we are God's messengers to preach the good news of the gospel to anyone who will hear it. So I've just listed some examples which you can look up later on this evening um, of angels doing this. We think of the three angels who appear to Abraham. Um, the two angels who spoke to Abraham then went into Sodom to, to Lot and then, and then took Lot out with his family and Sodom was destroyed. The angel who speaks to Abraham stopped him killing his son. Um, the angel who spoke to Gideon to tell him God would help him fight. The angel Gabriel delivering the news that John and, and Jesus were to be born. All these instances so key to God's plan and, and angels carrying out God's word and delivering his message to people. Sometimes a message that the humans that were receiving it um, weren't too keen on or were very shocked about and weren't expecting it. And yet it was so key as it was part of God's plan. And thinking again about ourselves, as we're to go out, we're to be messengers, God's messengers, aren't we? Um, what, we're give, what we're going to speak about and go out to speak to people about, people may not want to hear, will they? Um, a lot of the examples above, the, the people who received the message weren't expecting an angel to appear the, to them and pass them a life-changing message. And the exhortation is clear for us that we, we could appear in people's lives where they're not expecting to hear the gospel. And yet we could deliver that life changing message, couldn't we? And, and, and that's just an amazing opportunity we have, isn't it? That God has trusted us to be his messengers, to go out and spread his word. If you come with me to Mark 16, please. Mark 16, and, and just reading from verse 15. This is Jesus speaking. 
And he said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. So we're to go out and to share God's word to everyone, aren't we? Just as the angels were messengers for God, we are to be messengers as well. And the, the final point I'd like us to think about briefly um, is just trying to fix our minds on that image of the kingdom, isn't it? Um, and, and I'd suggest that our role, the role of the, the Elohim, the angels today, um, is perhaps what our role will be like in the kingdom, that our nature will be like this, a time of praising God and, and doing his will. If we just look at a couple of examples of the angels, I'll read you this one. And this is at the birth of Jesus, Luke 2 and read in verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest on earth and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And reading one of the passage from Revelation chapter 5, reading from verse 11. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Same with a loud voice, worthy, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the sea and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, blessing and honor. And glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. So it's just a nice image, isn't it? That is so key for us to keep in our mind of, of the role we will play in the kingdom. Again, there are limitations as to what we can picture with our finite human minds, but there are some amazing images, aren't there, of what, of what our role will be then. So I'll read a passage. If we can come to the Psalms, please. Psalm 148. And this is um, one of the, the, the final passage we'll look at today. Psalm 148 and, and reading from the start here. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all ye angels. Praise ye him all his hosts. Praise ye him, sun and moon. Praise him, all ye stars of light. Praise him, ye heavens of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He hath made a decree which shall not pass. So just summarising what we've looked at there, we, we've thought briefly of the characteristics of the angels and how in sync they are with God's plan that they could bear his name um, and, and, and how that is an example for us that we should try as hard as we can on a, in a daily battle to, to follow God's will, to be so in sync with God and Jesus. And we thought of how the angels are God's messengers and how we are commanded to go out to preach the good will, the good word, um, to, to preach the gospel to everyone, just as the angels delivered messages um, to so many people in the Bible. And um, we've briefly thought of how perhaps we will be similar to the angels in the, the kingdom when Jesus will return. And we pray that time will be soon when we can all meet together again. 
So as we're commanded to teach in the name of the Father, to be his ministers, let us go out this week and, and spread God's word. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.